Today we'll talk about making solitude however we need it, wherever, whenever, and as much as we want. An example from our modern culture is that whenever we want coolness, we have certain machines and we can go into a room that's air-conditioned and we can be physically cool whenever we want. But here we're speaking about mental solitude and so walking into a air-conditioned room won't be able to help us. Instead we, use, we must use a method that is specifically appropriate for this, which is what we'll consider now. And this is the instrument that we call anapanasati, or mindfulness with breathing in and out, which you have been studying and experimenting with over at the center across the highway. If you've, when you are successful in practicing mindfulness with breathing, then you can have solitude whenever you want it, wherever, and to the degree that you require it. You should remember that an air-conditioned room, although it may be used often just for our own pleasure and comfort, has other purposes. A cool room can be used to store certain things, such as medicine, which need to be kept in a cool place. So it, it has other benefits than the one we may primarily use it for. We wake up, or solitude is, is similar. If we want, we can seek it solely for our own happiness, the happiness that comes with a sufficient level of, of solitude, as we discussed earlier. However, we can use this same solitude for certain other benefits of a higher order, and in cases to the, the highest level of possible benefits. For example, when the mind has solitude or we wake up, it's possible to use that, that state of mind in order to reflect, to think, to examine, to study, to investigate things deeply for whatever needs we might have. It's possible that when there is this solitude to perform the highest duty that we have, which is the duty of the patsana, of, of insight. And so there can be more to viveka than just the immediate happiness that 
results from it. Or we can, we can teasingly say, if one wants, we can, we can create the kingdom of God in order to live in it, if we wish. When we've created solitude, then we can use it in order to develop even higher dhammas up into the highest, which is Nibbana, including we can develop the, the tool or instrument for realizing Nibbana, which is called Adhammayata, Adhammayata. We'd like to request you, request of you a very special favor, and that is that you take interest in this Pali word, atamayata, atamayata, rather than requiring us to translate it into English. However familiar you are with the word Buddhism, we would like you to be equally or even more familiar with the word atamayata. This word Atamayata is quite special or even a little bit strange. It can, it can mean the instrument or tool for realizing Nibbana. Or it can mean Nibbana itself. Or it can mean the, the happiness that arises from the realization of Nibbana. We're going to examine these three different aspects of Adhammayata. The thing we're calling solitude won't have reached its utmost or fullest development unless there is Adhammayata. Adhammayata is the only way to take solitude till its perfect, to its perfection. Adhammayata is the state of mind that is, that is imperturbable. The state of mind where nothing can change it or disturb it this mind that is beyond being shaken or moved is what we mean by atamayata. When the mind is totally imperturbable, where nothing can, can bother it or cook it up or affect it, that is the perfection of we wake up, or solitude. If you study this word atamayata in the Pali, then and come to know it, then you can translate it in the way you feel best into your your own language. 
In English, we might translate it as spiritual equilibrium or unconditionability or imperturbability or something like this, unconcoctability. But if you understand atamayata first, then you can find the translation that suits you. Allow us to repeat a metaphor for atamayata once again. The, all the great mountains of the world, the Himalayas, the Alps, the Rockies, the Andes, all of these, which appear very stable, all of these can shake and tremble whenever there is an earthquake. If the earth shakes, the knees shake with it. But the mind that has or is a dhammayata won't, won't shake or tremble at all. It's totally Im, immovable unshakable, even if the, there's an earthquake, even if the entire universe starts trembling, the mind with a dhammayata won't be affected in the least. Mountains are physical things. Let's look at an example that is a bit more mental. There's a, a young, a beautiful young woman very attractive, very, very intelligent. She has a tamayata. Then all the playboys in the world, the most handsome, the most suave, the richest, the best dressed, the most cultured playboys in the world can come by and none of them can flirt with her or, or pick her up or anything like that because she's got a dhammayata. She doesn't fall for any of these, these guys. Or a good-looking young man who has a dhammayata. All the beauty queens, all the fashion models, all these painted up and dressed up women can come by and none of them can, can turn his head or hook his nose and lead him off into some, into falling in love if he's got a dhammayata. The mind with a dhammayata is above all, even the least little bit of influence of positive and negative. And so there's nothing that can make it fall into love or hatred. The mind that is above all power of positive and negative is supreme solitude. If the mind can yet be pulled, pulled or hooked in a positive or negative way, then we can't really call that solitude. God's heaven or paradise must be like this. It, it can't be just some, 
some place of sensual pleasures and delights where one gets all one's desires satisfied. That kind of heaven won't lead to anything lasting or real. When you can hold to or follow this meaning of atamayata, then you will follow solitude to its perfection. You can figure it out for yourself that there will be a kind of peace and happiness which is even higher than we wake up, than solitude which comes with atamayata. Now that we've spoken enough about the the goal, we can speak about the way or method of realizing that goal. Your instructors at the meditation center have been explaining to you anapanasati, mindfulness with breathing. In mindfulness with breathing there are four main areas of of research and practice. In mindfulness with breathing there are four basic phases or stages. In the first you must deal with your own body. In the second you deal with your feelings, the pleasant feelings which we and unpleasant feelings. In the third, you deal with the jitta, the mind or the heart. And in the fourth, you deal with dhamma. In the first, regarding the body, we, we deal with our body by learning how to get it under control, how to regulate it, and how to keep it in a condition that is of the most benefit and use. When we use the word body, or in Pali, kaya, kaya, we can re- we are referring both to the the breathing. The breathing is one kind of body and we can refer to the the physical body itself, the, the overall body of flesh and blood and bones. So when we talk about the body, we mean the breathing on one hand and then the physical reality connected to the breathing which we usually just call the body. So we have two basic kinds of body, the breath body and the flesh body. But here, be careful, the word body or gaya just means group, a collection or compound of various things. The breath is a compound of various things and so is the physical body. When we say breath body, we're not talking about any 
astral bodies or anything superstitious like that. We just mean the breathing as it is, nothing fancy or special. It's important to understand the breathing and the physical body. This is necessary. In fact, the Pali word gaya just doesn't mean body, at least in the ordinary sense. It means group. It means a collection of things which are collected together in a group. Because the, the breath is a group of various conditions and things, we can call it a gaya. And because our physical bodies are a collection of various organs and tissues and things, we can also call it a gaya, which is usually translated as body. But here the word body, if you look carefully, means a group, a collection. In the first two lessons of Anapanasati, we study the nature of the breathing. We, we study the breathing in order to find out what the breathing is really like. From the aspect of the long breathing and the aspect of the short breathing. <coughs> the short breathing, we study it directly, experientially, to find out what the different kinds of breath are like and very importantly to see what kind of influence or effect the breathing in its different forms has on the body and on the mind. Sometimes we just say we study the nature of the breathing or of something, but that might be too superficial. We need to approach it as studying the nature of the nature of the nature of the nature of the breathing. This nature of things has its own nature and we can go more and more deeply into this if we're to really study things. Nobody can teach you what this nature of the breathing is like or what it is. You have to breathe yourself and study it yourself until seeing, seeing in very broad terms as well as very specific what the characteristics and qualities of the breathing are, what kind of effects it has on the body and mind, what kind of things influence the breathing and how seeing its importance, its seeing its role in life, the relationship of the breathing to, to life. These are all things that nobody can teach us. They're things to, to discover in our own breathing. When you've studied the nature of the breathing deeply, you'll come to see quite clearly that these two bodies, the, breathe, the breathing group and the, the physical body group or the flesh and blood group 
whatever you want to call it. These two things are intimately connected. They're so closely related that they're inseparable. The breath and the physical body are so closely connected and related that if we do anything to one, it will affect the other. Or if you do anything to the other, it will affect the first one. And so, because of this natural fact, it is possible for us to gain mastery over the body by mastering the breathing. Nobody can master their body directly. Nobody can control the body directly. But we can master it indirectly through the breathing. If the breathing is coarse, then the body will be in a coarse condition. When the breathing is subtle, then the body is in a subtle condition. If the breathing is distracted, disturbed, then the state of the body is distracted and disturbed, restless. If the breathing is calm, the body will be calm. You can find this out for yourself. You don't have to believe us at all. If you breathe, make the breathing very refined and subtle, make the breathing calm, then the body becomes very subtle and calm. So this leads to a certain level of viveka or solitude. We've said since the first talk that solitude is the resting place for the suffering soul. This you can find out for yourself by making the breathing long, relaxed, very subtle, calm and refined. And you'll find in this way you'll discover a certain degree or amount of solitude and you'll be able to see for yourself how restful and healthy that is. And in this way we can, we can cope with or we can heal the suffering soul whenever, wherever we are through the use of the breathing as we've just described. This is the cool room where the mind can run inside and find peace. We can find our air-conditioned room anywhere we are, whenever, as much as we want when we have mastered this, this degree of solitude. This can be achieved. We can do this even through practicing only the first four lessons of anapanasati, just the first stage, that which has to do with the body. In another 
from another angle we can say that in this way we have almighty breathing we have a super powerful kind of breathing where the breathing is so powerful that it can can get rid of any kind of heat in the mind through the breathing we can cool the mind immediately whenever and wherever we need to do so this this is a benefit that comes just from practicing the first phase of mindfulness with breathing on the other hand if you ever want to suffer if you ever want to be miserable you can bring on misery and suffering immediately by breathing in a really coarse and crude and low and messed up way just go and breathe improperly and it'll make you feel miserable so you can you can suffer whenever you want or you can feel happy and at peace whenever you want by mastering the breathing now we come to the second tetrad or group of four lessons which has to do with the vetana the feelings you'll have to see for yourself how what the role of these vetana are in life to see how they affect us how much power they have over us all of us are in love with the pleasant feelings with feeling good and all of us hate unpleasant feelings feeling feeling not so good all of us are spending lots of effort and time and money searching for pleasant feelings many of us are searching all over the world looking for these pleasant feelings we spend lots of money we spend lots of hours thinking and planning and purchasing in order to get what we hope will bring us these pleasant feelings there's not a single life in this world that isn't under the power of these these feelings we're all trying desperately to get positive feelings and doing our best to avoid and run away from the negative feelings this gives us a hint of how powerful <coughs> these things are if we look at it from a positive view we can see that we go to school we study we learn and then we we work in our various jobs for the sake of getting these pleasant feelings or we we travel for the sake of pleasant feelings why is it that all these white people are coming to Gosamui if not just to get try and find some more pleasant feelings this is to look at it from the the positive side on the opposite side the negative 
Why is it that people commit suicide? People are killing themselves all over this world because of the feel, these feelings. Or why do husbands and wives separate and divorce? It's always connected to these feelings. So the power of these feelings have their negative aspect as well. The capitalists want pleasant feelings. The, the workers also want pleasant feelings. And so they, because they're each trying to get these feelings that they want, they argue, they fight, and all kinds of struggles and conflicts arise because of these feelings, over these feelings. Vedana leads to dhanha, or this ignorant desire, what we call ignorant or foolish or even stupid desire. This Vedana leads to this desire that keeps all animals running around and around and around the world, whether humans or other animals. All these desires that keeps us running around all over the place, all of this comes from the Vedana. So we need to, these things are so powerful and get us into so much trouble that it's necessary to, to manage them, to be able to deal with them correctly. We have to be, we have to learn how to master them. And for this reason, we practice anapanasati in order to understand and master these kinds of, these various feelings which are called vetana. Vetana come in both positive and negative forms, but it's the negative, or it's the positive kinds of feelings that have the most power and do the most damage. So we need to be especially careful about the positive kinds of vetana. Because of positive feelings, we go searching all over for, for things. If we get them, then we need to protect them and keep them and guard them. And then this leads to all kinds, to fear, anxiety, worry that we're going to lose whatever it is we've accumulated. And so then there come up these negative feelings as well. We're slaves to both positive and negative feelings, but the positive feelings are more fearful, more frightening. When the positive feelings have more power and do more damage, then in Anapanasati we, we work with or study these positive feelings in particular, the ones, especially the ones that are called PT and Sukha. 
once we, if we can deal with the positive feelings, then it's trivial to, to deal with the negative ones. So in mindfulness with breathing, we, we come to terms with the positive feelings first. This, for the first kind of positive feeling is called in Pali, Biti. Biti. This Biti can be, uh, we can see that it has two basic levels. And it's, we need to translate each one in a different way. The first kind of BD is very crude and coarse. It's very distracting. It's kind of scattered. And this we can call rapture. It's very strong, kind of, very strong, energetic, not, not at all peaceful kind of rapturous feeling. But then there's also a kind of biti, which is very calm, much cooler than this rapture. When all that excitement and busyness calms down, then there's a kind of biti, which we can call contentment, which would be like the contentment that comes with with true solitude. One kind of piti is very hot and is very busy, makes a mess of things. And the other kind of piti is cool and leads to feeling of peace and well-being. One kind of piti is so exciting and stimulating that it even it even makes our bodies dance, kind of. It bubbles and makes our bodies bounce. And it can even make us go crazy if we're not careful. And then the other kind of BD is calm and cool and supports a state of, of normality. Nonetheless, we must control both of them so they don't inspire or stimulate us. If we let these things get control over the mind, they'll create problems. So we must control both of them. The other kind of feeling we need to study is called sukha, which can be translated happiness, joy, sometimes bliss. Though for many people that gets a little too exciting maybe just a simple happiness. When piti is calmed and cooled, when it becomes very, very calm, and all the stimulating, exciting part is calmed away, then we come to what we call sukha, when it's a joy that has nothing disturbing or exciting about it. In fact, if this piti that is calmed, that is controlled and calmed to the point of being genuine solitude, this then we can just call sukha or happiness. These 
pleasant feelings are very difficult to control. They can be quite powerful and they're so attractive that the mind has tremendous difficulty getting under them under control. Once they can be controlled, the negative feelings are no difficulty at all. So then we must practice in order to bring these pleasant feelings under control so that neither piti, piti or sukha has any ability to disturb the mind, to, to influence or affect the mind. Then the mind is in a cool room all the time. The mind can remain cool no matter what once these feelings are under control. If we're unable to control these vetana, then vetana leads to dhanha, desire. And desire leads us by the nose around and around the world without any end. We just keep spinning around. When, we're, when we complete the second phase of practice, then the feelings are under control and we have a higher level of solitude. In the third phase or tetrad of our study and practice, we come to the jita. You can translate it as heart, translate it as mind. It includes both of these meanings. But we need to study the jita. We need to deal with it, come to terms with it, and be able to control it so that the jita, the mind, the heart, can be used for whatever is necessary. In, in Buddhism, we only have, life is only made of two things, body and mind. In Buddhism, there's no third thing to complicate it. There's nothing like an Atman or a self or a soul, such as in Hinduism. In Hinduism, they've got this Atman, and so there's, it gets very complicated in dealing with this Atman if you read all the, all the complicated theory about it. In Buddhism, it's much more simple. There's just the body and the mind. And once we can cope with the mind, get the mind under control, then everything else will be fine. When one can control the mind, then one controls the world. Try to remember this. When the mind is under control, then the world is under control. If we're unable to control the mind, the mind, then it will be constantly disturbed <clears throat> by positive and negative. And then we end up with a struggling soul. Or since in Buddhism, there's, we don't find a soul anywhere, we can say <clears throat> we end up with a struggling jitta, struggling mind, a suffering heart. <clears throat> that is always, <clears throat> that is full of problems 
and is always busy with various things, struggling and fighting against the positive and the negative in life. So it's necessary to be able to control the mind so that it's no longer messed with, it's no longer disturbed by positive and negative. Before we can control the mind, we have to know all the different forms and shapes it can take. Or to put it in more crude terms, we can say we need to know how many forms of insanity the mind can take. We need to see all the strange and, and neurotic tendencies of the mind. We have to see all the different neurotic states which the mind can undergo. We need to see this if we're going to be able to control the mind. Sometimes there is lust and sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there's anger and sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there's delusion and sometimes there isn't. Sometimes the mind is attached to this, to that, and sometimes it's not attached to anything. These are just a few of the examples of some of the forms of craziness that the mind gets into. We need to understand, to observe and understand all the forms of craziness, boredom, excitement, fear, worry, all these things that the mind gets into. Then, if we do this, then we can say we know the mind. Some things we can't know directly because we're, we're as yet unable to experience them. In such cases, we can estimate or deduce what those things would be like. For example, Nibbana is something that is difficult for us to experience because there's all these different kinds of defilements, greed, anger, fear, worry, and all that getting in the way. So we can deduce what Nibbana is like. When we know, when we see clearly what greed, anger, hatred, delusion, what that is like, then we can, we can get a sense of what it would be like when all of these are gone completely. When life is absolutely free of greed, anger, fear, worry, boredom, excitement, what might that be like? So to understand certain states, we may need to use this approach. Next, we practice at at controlling or mastering the mind. The first way of practicing this is to make the mind brahmod, or in Pali, bamocha, which can be translated as kind of a, a cheerful, enjoyable, um, delighted state of mind. So making the mind cheerful, comfortable, is one way of, of controlling the mind. 
if we've been successful in our earlier stages of practice, we can we can bring up bhiti and sukha whenever we want. And we can use these to put the mind in a comfortable, enjoyable condition. Whenever we need delight and comfort in the mind, we can we can do it immediately. Just just stop for a moment and think how how wonderful that might be. However, this this delight, this enjoyableness of the mind can still be quite busy. And so the next way to control the mind is to make all that stop, to make the mind very firm and stable, to put the mind in samadhi. This is the second way of controlling the mind or mastering the mind. To be able to make the mind samadhi, to make it very stable, clear, and calm. This is an even higher, this is not, this is quite a bit of, of solitude. To be able to make the mind samadhi whenever we want. The third way of mastering the mind is to make it let go. All the time the mind is getting caught on things. The mind is grabbing onto feelings, onto objects of experience. And this third way of mastering the mind is to make the mind let go. Whatever it's grabbing onto, make it let go. Or if necessary, pull the mind off of it. This is the third form of mastering the mind. So as regards this third tetrad, there are these four lessons. The first is knowing all the different kinds of mind, all the different kinds of jitta or heart. Then making the mind delighted. Then making it stable and samadhi. And last, making the jitta let go, freeing the heart from, from whatever it's caught on. When we can master the mind, then we have mastered the world. We're masters above everything in the world once we get the mind under control. The fourth tetrad concerns Dhamma. And in this one, we must deal with the ordinary condition of the mind. Hama and or Dhamma, and then in Thai we have the word Tamada, Tamada, which means ordinary or normal. And this ordinary or typical condition of the mind is attachment. This is our major possession. Our wealth in life is this clinging to things. In this last aspect of practicing mindfulness with breathing, we must get control over this 
ordinary condition of the mind, this, this attachment, which is so habitual with us. The other day, we mentioned the four kinds of attachment. Sensual att attachment to sensuality, to sensual pleasures, and to sex. Attachment to views, opinions, theories. Attachment to superstitions. And attachment to ego, to I and mine. It's kind of funny and kind of sad that this is our basic possession in life. This is this is what we are carrying around with us all our lives. Our wealth of the ordinary human being. Our wealth is made up of these different kinds of attachment. But if we want to <coughs> conserve our words a bit, we can just talk about two kinds of attachment. Attachment to positive and attachment to negative. Attachment is like carrying things. Attachment is like picking up things and carrying them around. And they become very heavy. So attaching to anything is to turn it into a burden. The kind of attachment which is heaviest and most burdensome of all is attachment to ego. All the feelings and experiences through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, all of these are collected together in, in ego. This ego attachment is the heaviest, the worst kind of attachment. Creates the most harm and suffering. Sometimes we call it life. We attach to life. And when we attach to life, then it bites its owner. If we cling to life, then it turns around and bites, bites us. Therefore, our duty is to destroy attachment. Therefore, we must study this attachment very carefully. We must know exactly what it is, what it's like, how it comes, where it comes from, what it leads to, what it causes. We must know it thoroughly and profoundly. In this fourth area of practice, this tetrad that deals with attachment, we begin with the lesson where we, we contemplate impermanence. We contemplate the fact that things are changing all the time, this fact of instability, of constant change and flow, that which in Pali is called anijang, anijang, impermanence. Every cell in our bodies is changing. Every atom in every cell is constantly pulsing and swirling and vibrating and changing. Everything within our bodies, everything in the world around us, others, is changing, are changing all the time. 
we must see this, this fact that all things that make up our own lives in the world around us, that all of these are impermanent. There was a Greek philosopher at the same time of the, about the same time as the Buddha, whose central teaching was that everything is constantly changing. He expressed this as pantare, everything flows. This was central in his philosophy that everything flows. Many people thought that he was, that he was crazy for saying this, that everything flows. Are any of you in that category who think that it's crazy to say that everything is changing all the time? There's one discourse in the Pali texts where the Buddha speaks of a Arata Sasada. Arata Sasada means a teacher, but a a leading teacher, and Araka means in a distant city. The Buddha said there was a, an important teacher in a distant city who taught impermanence, as the Buddha did. We must be very careful not to join the group of people who thought that, who think that Heraclitus is crazy. By this I'm, we mean that you can't, that we should be very careful that we don't end up not believing in impermanence. In fact, many of us, maybe without realizing it or without examining it, believe in permanence. We believe in all these permanent things that we can have, keep, own, and so, in fact, we often fall into the group who think that Heraclitus is crazy for saying that everything flows. So, therefore, the first lesson in this last tetrad is to observe very carefully the fact of impermanence in all, all worldly things, in all things that make up this universe there is this fact of impermanence and there are no exceptions. If we truly see in the fact of impermanence, then we'll know for ourselves that we're really stupid to go in attached to anything that's constantly flowing and changing. It's ridiculous to try and grab onto and hold onto something that's changing from moment to moment. This we will realize for ourselves when we really see this fundamental fact of impermanence. The second lesson here is to then observe the impermanence of the things we're still attached to. Whatever we're still clinging to Take a good look at it until we see that it's constantly flowing, always changing. And then that attachment will start to dissolve and fade away. Obs 
this fading, making attachment fade away and observing the fading away, the dissolving of attachment is the second lesson here. This second lesson is to, to observe, to deeply experience this fading away of attachment. See the impermanence of these things we're still clinging to and then observe experience as that attachment dissolves, breaks up and fades away. This fading away is called viraka, viraka, experiencing it within ourselves, not thinking about it but experiencing it as the mind actually is letting go of things. This is the second lesson. The third lesson is no big surprise, you can figure this out for yourself that if attachment fades away and fades away, eventually nothing's left. And this is what the third lesson is about. The, as attachment fades away, it's eventually quenched. It's quenched, the attachment is gone, and there's just coolness. This is called nirota. This is what the third lesson is about. Now, attachment ends. It ends totally. There's no attachment left in life. There's not even any attachment towards ego. This, this total ending, quenching, cooling of attachment is called nirota, where it's fully cooled down. This we call nirota. Nirota. The fourth lesson is to throw, throw it all away. Everything we've ever attached to and everything else to boot, just throw it all away. Just toss it away. This is called patinitsaka, throwing away. When we can throw it all away, our bodies, our minds, our feelings, everything, just toss it away. Then there's there's no more heat, there's no more, there's nothing disturbing or tormenting the mind. This is when we wake up is perfect. When everything is tossed away, then there's perfect solitude. There's nothing that can disturb the mind. The mind is totally at peace, totally free, totally cool. This is the perfection. This is what is meant by Nibbana, or here we call it throwing away. Experiencing this throwing away is the 16th lesson. So let me go ahead and take the liberty of calling Anapanasati a machine for creating solitude. Anapanasati is a mechanism for making we wake up. Let's develop this kind of industry. Let's develop an industry where we build these machines that make solitude. The kind of industry 
the physical material kind of industry we've got in the world now is just destroying the world. So let's develop this this kind of industry that will that will lead to lasting peace, that will lead to real peace for the world instead of destroying it. If you take a good look at it, you'll be quite happy with this machine for making solitude. And we hope that you will be very successful in building this machine and allowing it to make a lot of spiritual solitude for you. Ten days isn't enough to, to finish building your machine. It'll probably take a little longer than this, just these ten days. So we request that you continue practicing until you succeed and are totally successful. If you wish, you're welcome to come back here at any time and benefit from uh, whatever we can help with here at Suen Mok. But what we request most of all is that you don't stop. Whatever you do, don't stop this important duty of building this, this machine, which will create not only solitude, but, but peace for both us and for the world. Finally, may we offer you the highest thanks for your ability to patiently sit and listen. Thank you and congratulations. So, that's all for today. <laughs>